So today we come to the final sermon of the series, and to come to the final sermon of the series, we come to the final clause of the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in, and here's the clause, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, there are so many ways that we could address this clause. As I entered each week of this series, I didn't get ahead at all. I just went week by week by week. I wanted each of the clauses to be fresh and to be new. As I prayed through each one, as I came to different scriptures that helped us to uncover, to unpack, to, to illuminate each of these clauses and what they mean for us today, it was so important to go into that, thinking about it in terms of what does this clause mean for us today? How does the Apostles' Creed help us to live out our faith? Because that is, at its essence, what the Apostles' Creed was about. Every creed that the early church would say was taught to people who were learning about faith, who were going through the baptism experience, and they would learn these creeds. And the point was that these creeds helped you to live out your faith in a specific way. And so each time that we've come to a clause, my goal has been not just that it would be words that we would believe in, that we would say, but the, these words would have an impact on how we live our lives. And every time that we come back to one of these creeds, when we come back to the Apostles' Creed, we come back to one of these clauses, what I want to have happen is for us to so intimately understand this creed that when we say those words, we recognize the meaning behind them. Now, that's going to be a journey for us. It's going to be something we're going to travel through. So these 12 weeks, it's not just like the 12 weeks are done and we're finished with this series. It's that this is going to inform how we think about this moving forward. And I'll come back to it at different times to help us to understand that. All of this is central to how we understand our faith. And so then we come to this, and I've said this throughout the series, that there are going to be clauses that we're going to come to and we're going to say, what is that about? What does that mean? And some of it's going to be um, something we'll understand a little bit more. Some of it's going to be a little more confusing. And some of it's going to have all kinds of nuance. And all of that is found in this particular one today. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Again, there are so many ways that we could look at this, but the way that I want to do this today is I want to focus on one of the strangest and weirdest verses that we come to in all of the Bible. And I say that recognizing, and you know that I'll say this out loud, that the Bible is full of strange verses, strange stories, weird chapters, all kinds of oddities. But, but as we do this, I, I, in recognizing that, I want to look at this one today. Because I think it's often overlooked because the translation is difficult and it raises all kind of questions as we try to understand it. And that's what we find as we come to these sometimes strange passages or weird passages. We're reminded that these are ancient words written by ancient people seeking to understand their faith that come to us and, and somehow through the incredible power of the Holy Spirit, through the inspired way that which they were written and the way that God continues to work through them, we learn things through these passages that impact our lives today. This one is a strange verse. It's a weird verse. It raises all kind of questions. We find this written by the Apostle Paul 
to a church that he started in the Greek city of Corinth. And it was written probably somewhere around 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in this letter to Corinth, Paul addressed all kinds of issues that this church faced. He dealt with division. He dealt with uh, immorality. He dealt with marriage. He dealt with uh, family dynamics. He even dealt with issues of worship. And then towards the end of this particular letter, he addressed the issue of resurrection. The belief that one day the dead would rise again, just like Jesus rose again. And the idea, the point, the the understanding behind the resurrection was that the dead would rise again to be part and to take part of a renewed and a restored world. Now, there's a lot going on as we begin to talk about resurrection. There's a lot that's going on as we begin to talk about the idea of eternal life. And with those two things, we probably have all kinds of pictures that have, that have been brought to us by things we have read or people have said or assumptions we make. And so what I want to do is I want us to think about this as almost a blank slate. As the best you can, and and I try to do this this week, the best you can, I want you to come to this idea without any of those pictures that we've had. I I want you to take those phrases like the pearly gates or meeting Paul or Peter at the pearly gates. I want you to take away the idea of angels playing harps and sitting on clouds. Take away all of those ideas because we need to get an essence of the biblical concept of resurrection, of heaven of a restored and new earth. Because all of that is so drastically different than the idea of heaven that we learn in popular theology. That it is brought to us, that is missing some of the key elements that's really going on here. So, as Paul begins to talk about this, he says these incredibly bizarre words. He says, now if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now again, I, I, I just I'm gonna read it again because it's so odd. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Um, I don't know, Paul, why are people being baptized for the dead? And then he says, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And it's not hard to read this and look at it and say, this seems like there's some kind of like proxy baptism taking place. It seems like somehow people are getting baptized in place of dead people or for dead people. And this is a weird verse. And I'm going to tell you right now, it is a really, really odd verse. And scholars are all over the place on trying to understand this verse. Some people... I think apologetically try to see it and and move it and shift it a little bit. Some people go right into it and say, hey, it just, it seems like Paul is talking about uh, some kind of way that people uh, did things back then that would be very different than we would do today. 
So here, when I came to this verse, I got to tell you, I was reading 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul talks about resurrection. I came to this verse and I thought, I wonder if I can just work around it. Can I just do the first couple verses, skip this one, come to another? Can, can, I, can I read what's after it and not really worry about what comes before it? Can I just shift away from this verse? And, and here's why I don't want to do that. Because I want to assume that everybody has a Bible open or that they have an app. And that they're reading along in this text. And the last thing I want you to do is, I don't want you to think that I'm just going to skip over a difficult verse. And I'll be honest, that's what I wanted to do. As I was looking at the issue of resurrection, this verse is not at the top of my list. In fact, I sent this to a few of my friends, and I said that this is one verse that I would gladly ignore and not talk about at all. So what changed? Why in the world would I choose to begin my sermon today, the, the, this, this final week of the Apostles' Creed, with this very odd verse? And there's two reasons for it. The first reason is this. I will always do what I ask of you. I will always do myself what I ask for you to do. And I often ask you to lean into and to not ignore passages that don't seem to make any sense. And that's definitely how I feel about this verse. So normally I would say to you, listen, if you find a passage that seems hard, that seems weird, that seems difficult, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't jive with our current understandings or doesn't me mesh with our modern world, my, my advice to you often is, hey, hey, don't, don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Lean into it. See what you can learn from it. Find out what the context is, what the people were talking about. How does that connect and what can we learn from that? It's not that maybe, maybe that verse in particular doesn't have something to teach you. It's not like every verse is like a, like a guide or something like that. But how does, it, how does it connect with all the other scripture around it and then the entirety of scripture? And then let's mesh that and read it through the lens of of Jesus. And this is how we've done a lot of difficult passages over the years. We did a particular passage in Joshua talking about there, there's some issues there that are really difficult to read. And we said, well, how do you read those passages? And we read them in light of Jesus. And so that's what I want us to do here as well. When you find these difficult passages, read them in light of Jesus. See how Jesus, um, does Jesus interpret this a different way? Or does how we understand Jesus allow us to look at something and say, hey, that's not right. That's not okay. Jesus teaches us a different way of being and doing. So we begin to see understanding shift. We begin to see changes taking place. We see that faith is growth. We see the, the story revealing more. That's the incredible power of this. So now we come back to this strange verse. This is, this is how I feel about this verse. It's a difficult passage. It doesn't seem to make sense. It appears to suggest that people in Corinth were being baptized for dead people in their place. And I just wanted to ignore the weirdness of that. When I read this, I just wanted to say, okay, I don't know that I want to do that. But as I started thinking about it, I thought about all the times that I've said that passages that give us the most trouble often lead to the most profound lessons. 
the passages that, that are the most difficult are the ones that seem to be the, that lead us to the most profound lessons as we explore what they're talking about. And this leads us to the second reason that I'm starting with this verse. We don't always have easy answers. Did you get that? We, we don't always have easy answers, and that's okay. If you ask me a question, I'm probably going to tell you, I'm not sure. We should explore that a little more. But the last thing I want to give you is just a simple and an easy answer. We don't always have the easy answers. I feel like my job, and I saw a tweet about this, is my job is more often now not necessarily to talk about all the specific ways and try to put God in some kind of box, but to help us all to understand maybe God isn't like the box that we place God in at all. Maybe we need to ask bigger questions. Maybe we need to look for deeper answers. Maybe we need to see that things are not as always easy as we want them to be. And this verse proves it. Some of the greatest scholars of the Bible tell us that nobody completely understands what Paul is talking about in this verse. The original language that Paul used in the Greek language that he uses in this passage is complicated. And it also seems that we're missing some kind of context beyond that. And we know that because the answer is potentially in other letters that he wrote to this church because we know that Paul corresponded with Corinth. We know that he talks about that there are other letters that he wrote to them. But here's the thing. We don't have those letters. So we're missing some context. So what do we do with that? Well, here's what we do. We admit that we need to be humble. There is a humbleness in admitting that we don't fully understand things. The older I get, the more I follow Jesus, the more I learn to be okay that I don't have to understand all of it. And that's probably a good attitude when talking about things like resurrection, eternal life, and what happens after you die. It is probably a good idea to come into a talk about that with a humbleness, with just a sense that maybe I don't have it all figured out. One of my, one of my favorite things that I like to say is that there are people that I think that they will be surprised by who they spend eternity with. And I think the reason I like that is because it helps us to understand in this life how we can be the kind of loving and graceful and merciful people that God is calling each and every one of us to be. The biggest things that Jesus talked about was judgment and not placing people in places before you know. So think about that. Who, who are the people that we will be surprised that we spend eternity with? And that helps us to understand and begin to think about what is eternal life? What is resurrection? What happens after you die? Now, with all of that in mind, I want you to listen to these verses again. And now, with all of that, let's see what we can discover about this as we lean into the tension and the weirdness of what's going on. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now let's stop because there's a great clause at the very beginning. Now, if there is no resurrection. So the opening words of this verse reveal that the people in Corinth were struggling with accepting the doctrine and or, or the belief of the resurrection. And they're not alone. The idea of resurrection was something that was, uh, there was a lot of conflict about. There were a lot of questions about. In the time of Jesus, in fact, there were several unique denominations of Judaism built partly upon who believed or didn't believe in resurrection. And the idea was contentious. Even among the followers of Jesus, the early disciples struggled to believe that Jesus was resurrected. We talk about that every Easter. They can't believe what had taken place. And now here we see that struggle was amplified when it shifted from talking about Jesus's resurrection to everyone. And see, that's what begins to take place in the early church. And that's the belief of the church, that we shift, that we move, that we begin to think about this. And, the, the, and, the, and as I talked about the, the Jewish denominations that believed in resurrection, it was this idea of everyone's resurrection. But we see this, this questioning, we see this uncertainty develop as we shift from Jesus's resurrection having taken place to everyone's resurrection is going to take place. And it causes all these different people to pause and start to wonder, and so Paul says, now, if there is no resurrection. So what he's saying is, look, I, for some reason, it seems like some of you don't believe in this idea of resurrection. Let me help you to understand why this is so important, why it matters so much. And Paul, just like all the early Christians that began to teach and began to, to share about Jesus and began to, to reflect on how Jesus talked about resurrection, they saw that it was central to the, the message of Jesus. They saw that it was central to the good news of Jesus, this belief in resurrection and eternal life. Another letter that Paul wrote a couple years before 1 Corinthians was a letter to the city to a church in Thessalonica. He says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, and hear this, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. These are beautiful words of hope. And that's what Paul talks about. He goes on, he begins to explain that he says, this is how I want you to talk about things because I want you to give each other hope. Now, some people read this, they get caught up on the literal, literal language here. They get caught up on what does it mean about trumpet and archangels and clouds and caught up in the air and all of these things. And they assume that Paul is talking in detail about what will happen. But I want us to think about this in a little bit different way. Again, we are coming humble to this. What if this flourish of language points to the wonder of this incredible reality? 
See, I think Paul's language here is pointing to the wonder of this idea of resurrection. He was providing hope to people. He was helping them to see that this is not the end of the story, but there are greater things yet to come. And we talk about this all the time. We say, I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus. Or we talk about people we have lost and we talk about them walking with Jesus. And I firmly believe that in my heart as I read the scripture, as I see the way that Jesus talked, as I experience the resurrected Lord in my own life, I know that someday I will walk with Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about here this incredible emotive language. He's excited. He's stoked about this. And he says, have some hope. You will walk and be with Jesus. All those who have died, who who are in Christ, will be with Jesus. He was providing hope. Now we find hope again in Revelation. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 3. He says, or the, the writer says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, hear this, listen to this. God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That ties into these beautiful pictures we have of the garden. As people wrote this story and they began to think and and began to create this origin story for humanity and this idea that God walked with us. And then we see in Jesus that God sends Jesus to this world to be among us and with us and to walk with us. And then we have the promise in Revelation that again, God will dwell with us, be among us, be with his people, with his creation, that we will walk with our God. Now listen to this. In verse 4, they continue on. Listen to this hope when heaven and earth meet. Listen to how it describes it. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Do you see what he says? There will be no more death. There there will be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying or pain. And then listen to this phrase, for the old order of things has passed away. And he says, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. I love the hope in that. I I love the hope that he's not saying things are going to go back to how they were. Things are going to be new. And he says all the old things, the way that the earth was before, was that there was death, mourning, 
crying in pain. We see this every day. We doom scroll through Twitter. We see things on the news. We are constantly inundated with death, mourning, crying, and pain. The old order of things. For whatever reason, our, our, we, are drawn, we are drawn to stories like that. There's something within us that says, hey, let's, let's share more stories about death and mourning, crying and pain. And for some reason, we keep running to those things. And he says, but that's not what the future is look like. That's not what the hope is that we have. See, here's what's cool. The people who read the letters of Thessalonians and Revelation, they had experienced all of that pain. They had experienced all the pain this world had to throw at them. And into that suffering into persecution that they experienced, into, into the worst that the world could throw at them, they were told that there is a day when they would experience the renewal of this world. And they were told that there would be no more pain, there would be no more sickness, there would be no more death, there would be no more poverty, there would be no more injustice, and there would be no more shame. And if we were in church today, I would expect to hear some yells and some cheers, amens, clapping, all of those things that we love to do together. And if you're sitting on your couch or you're in your car, you're driving to work, wherever you are today, when I read that, you should be cheering like crazy in your car and people should be staring at you. People should wonder what you're listening to if you're working out in the gym. Because if you hear this, I want you to understand how exciting this is to think about. A world with no pain, no sickness, no death, no poverty, no injustice, no shame. Imagine and think about that world. How would you write about that world? Would you talk about it the way that Paul talked about? Would you have a flourish of words? Would you get excited about it? It's that hope that Paul is talking about. It's that hope that is my responsibility to talk to you about all the time to say, listen, the resurrection of Jesus changes this world because he doesn't just change this world. He changes the world to come. A new reality is on its way where there is no pain and no death, no poverty, no injustice, no shame. Give me that world. I want to experience that world. And it's that hope that helps us understand what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Because he says, now, if there is no resurrection, if that doesn't exist, see, do you, do you, hear, do you hear? Put the emphasis in this weird verse on that first part. If there is no resurrection, if there is no hope of that world. Sit with that for a second. What if this is it? What if pain? What if sickness? What if death? What if greed? What if injustice? What if poverty? What if shame? What if that was what wins? What if that's all there is? That sounds hopeless. <laughs> yeah, don't you remember how Paul talked about Jesus? Don't you see how the early church talked about the resurrection? When they looked at Jesus, they said he conquered death. He conquered pain. He conquered sickness. The good news of Jesus was justice and grace and mercy and love. And he conquered all of that to bring that 
to reality. So Paul says, now, if there is no resurrection, if there is no hope, and he goes on and he says this, listen, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, if there is no hope, if there is no resurrection, we get that part, but then he says again, why are people baptized for them? Now, let's get into this a little bit. We get, now, there, if there is no resurrection, we get that part. If the dead are not raised at all, we, we get that part. It's this, why are people baptized for them? Or, or, or what will those do who are baptized for the dead? That's the part that sounds weird to us. So in humbleness, let me take some, some approach to this for us today. Most scholars will say, significant number of scholars. I, I don't know a single scholar that can point to evidence that anybody in Corinth got baptized for dead people. We, we, we have, I mean, we have no evidence of the idea of proxy baptism. So, so as people read this, that this is the only evidence they have is something that seems like it's pointing to something, but we don't have any other evidence, any other letters, any other context, any other uh, thing that would show that that what was taking place. So people have taken this passage that way. They've turned this baptism into some kind of magical act and resurrection as a prize. But that's not what Paul does at all. Paul, Paul doesn't seem to be condoning some kind of practice that we have no evidence of. Because I know that because that's not how Paul talked about baptism and resurrection anywhere else. See, now that we have this background on it, Paul's saying, what if there is no resurrection? Well, Paul didn't talk about it any other way but that. So, so Paul didn't talk about baptism and resurrection as some kind of magical act that gets you the resurrection prize. He didn't talk about it that way. So what's going on? So you have to read on. So the context is huge here. Listen, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and tomorrow we die. Now, this is fascinating because in verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, Paul never fought wild beasts in Ephesus. He doesn't talk about that anywhere else. We have a letter to the Ephesians. He's talking about something metaphorically. He's talking about something else going on. Paul is writing in a flourish because he's excited about the resurrection. And just like when I talk about things, I look back on my videos or I look back on my sermons and I cringe a little bit because I get so excited that I end up saying all kinds of stuff. And if you just took a snippet of that and you took it out of context, you go, man, that sounds really strange and really weird. And that's what Paul is doing. He is so excited that he just starts writing with this incredible flourish and he says man what 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 would be the point paul was saying this the hope of the resurrection should impact you now in other words if you don't believe in a world where heaven meets earth tomorrow why live like it today let me say that again if you don't believe in a world where heaven meets earth tomorrow, why in the world would you live like it today? That is how Paul talked about baptism and resurrection everywhere else. Baptism represents that we are born into a new life in the here and now. Our lives are no longer just about this world, but are meant to reflect that world to come. 
So listen to this. Imagine people giving their lives to Jesus, faithfully serving God, and being people who their entire lives from that moment on bring love and grace and mercy into this world. Imagine people giving their lives to Jesus and being so changed by Jesus that the rest of their lives, they faithfully serve him. They bring love and grace and mercy into this world. Another way to translate verse 29 is to say that people were baptized because of the witness of people like that. When these faithful people died, others reflected on their lives. And their lives captivated and caused those people to give their lives to Jesus. And the perpetual faith and witness continued. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized because of the dead? Those who lived faithfully and then passed? Those who gave their lives to Jesus, brought grace and mercy and love into this world, and then went on? If the dead are not raised, why would you give your lives to the same thing? See, I don't know exactly what Paul is talking about here. The language is confusing. There's no doubt about it. But I want to live my life like that. It's the kind of faith that has inspired me in my faith. And I want my life to reflect heaven the way that I've seen heaven reflected by people who have inspired my life. My dad's not going to be happy when I say this today because he doesn't like when I point him out. But this week I've had an opportunity to sit with several different friends. And as I've sat with these people that I haven't seen for a couple years, they, they asked about my dad and how he was doing. And each time I got to say, hey, he's just back to his old self. He, he's, he, we, we, we have these awesome conversations. We bicker with each other because we love each other. I said, we just, it, it, it's, it's the good old days again. He's doing great. And then I look at these people and I say, I'm so thankful for the witness of my dad. Because someday, someday when I grow up, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to be the kind of person that just loves everybody. That is so welcoming to every person that walks in our church doors. That when I walk around, man, he can people with anybody because he peoples better than anybody else. The way that he shows grace and love to people he meets. I just want to live like that. The way that I've seen him faithfully pastor for 50 plus years of his life, giving every moment to help people hear the good news of Jesus. That's the way I want to live. And someday he's going to pass, and I know that. And I'm going to say I want to be like my dad. I want to live like that.
See, that's what I think Paul is talking about. And that's how I understand this passage today. That if there is no resurrection, why would we live our lives to the same thing that people live for? In Romans 6, Paul wrote about it this way. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him so that the body or be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, Paul taught that resurrection matters and impacts our choices today. Our present life should reflect what our eternal lives should be. And I can't say that any more clear. And as I worked on this sermon this week, I called my dad and we talked about that. And that was the thing that we both came back to was that our present lives should reflect what our eternal lives will be. Yet sin gets in the way of that. Last week I talked about how the world, excuse me, I talked about how the word sin is a word that means missing the mark. We actually talk about this all the time. We say we're learning to love God and love others. Jesus taught that that's the target that we are to aim about, loving God and loving others. Yet in our sin, we miss it. And we choose lives about our own wants and needs in this temporal reality. Jill, I might need you to bring me a tissue. Yet when we fully, listen, listen, listen. Oh, thanks, Jill. It's incredible. When you, when you read this and you see that what Paul is talking about is that we are not to live our lives in this temporal existence seeking our own wants and needs. We're to fully lean into the reality of the resurrection, metaphorically pictured in our baptism and lived out through our lives. So let me say this as clear as I can as we come to a close. When we fully lean into the reality of that resurrection, a world with no pain and no poverty, no injustice, no shame, no sin. We lean into that metaphorically pictured by our baptism as we go in the water in death and come out into new life. You now are no longer living this world here and now in this moment. You are living a person of that world. That is why Paul talks about, I am no longer a citizen of this world. I am a part of the kingdom of God that is to come but is here now present through those who have given their lives to Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we live it out through our lives. We hit the mark, loving God, loving others, and bringing his will to earth through the action of our lives. The incredible reality of Christianity is that life and afterlife, baptism and resurrection are more intimately connected than we realize. This is how I wrote it in my notes. I said, the hope of the resurrection tomorrow is made real in the hope we share through our lives today by being people who live lives of heaven in the here and now. So, 
I believe in the eternal love of God. I'm going to live that out today. If I believe in the eternal presence of God, I'm going to live God's presence today. If I believe in the eternal joy of God, I'm going to live as someone of joy. If I believe that in heaven there is no disease, poverty, or hate, I'm going to live my life today to rid the world of those things. And if I believe in mercy, love, and grace, I'm going to live to bring those in this world today. That's what my friend Kurt talked about. and He didn't even know what I was talking about today. And he talked about that idea. His witness is so beautiful. He says, this is the way that I am going to live my life. I am going to care for those around me. Because in heaven, that homeless man has shoes. There is justice. There is goodness. There is no poverty. There is no homelessness. There is a mansion and room for all of us. Every one of us. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life preaching that message of grace and mercy and love that God has for this whole world. Something I've been saying a lot in this next season at Southeast is that we're not just going to go to church. We're called to be the church wherever we go. See, we're not just called to go to heaven. We're called to be heaven wherever we go. And when I say that, I'm saying I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That's what I'm saying. God, we thank you today for difficult passages that bring us to profound truth. May we be people who have so much hope of heaven to come that we can't help but be people of heaven today. Amen.